preface of the admirable Bashville by George Bernard Shaw. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Admirable Bashville Preface The Admirable Bashville is a product of the British law of copyright. As that law stands at present, the first person who patches up a stage version of a novel, however worthless and absurd that version may be, and has it read by himself and a few confederates to another confederate who has paid for admission in a hall licensed for theatrical performances, secures the stage rights of that novel, even as against the author himself, and the author must buy him out before he can touch his own work for the purposes of the stage. A famous case in point is the drama of East Lynne, adapted from the late Mrs. Henry Wood's novel of that name. It was enormously popular, and is still the surest refuge of touring companies in distress. Many authors feel that Mrs. Henry Wood was hardly used in not getting any of the money which was plentifully made in this way through her story. To my mind, since her literary copyright probably brought her a fair wage for the work of writing the book, her real grievance was, first, that her name and credit were attached to a play with which she had nothing to do, and which may quite possibly have been to her a detestable travesty and profanation of her story, and second, that the authors of that play had the legal power to prevent her from having any version of her own performed if she had wished to make one. There is only one way in which the author can protect himself, and that is by making a version of his own and going through the same legal farce with it. But the legal farce involves the hire of a hall and the payment of a fee of two guineas to the king's reader of plays. When I wrote Cashel Byron's Profession, I had no guineas to spare, a common disability of young authors. What is equally common, I did not know the law. A reasonable man may guess a reasonable law, but no man can guess a foolish anomaly. Fortunately, by the time my book so suddenly revived in America I was aware of the danger, and in a position to protect myself by writing and performing the admirable Bashville. The prudence of doing so was soon demonstrated, for rumors soon reached me of several American stage versions, and one of these has actually been played in New York, with the boxing scenes under the management, so it is stated, of the eminent pugilist Mr. James J. Corbett. The New York press, in a somewhat derisive vein, conveyed the impression that in this version Cashel Byron sought to interest the public, rather as the last of the noble race of the Byrons of Dorsetshire than as his unromantic self, but in justice to a play which I never read, and an actor whom I never saw, and who honorably offered to treat me as if I had legal rights in the matter, I must not accept the newspaper evidence as conclusive. As I write these words, I am promised by the King in his speech to the Parliament a new copyright bill. I believe it embodies, in our British fashion, the recommendations of the book publishers as to the concerns of the authors, and the notions of the musical publishers as to the concerns of the playwrights. As author and playwright, I am duly obliged to the commission for saving me the trouble of speaking for myself, and to the witnesses for speaking for me. But unless Parliament takes the opportunity of giving the authors of all printed works of fiction, whether dramatic or narrative, both playwright and copyright, as in America, such to be independent of any insertions or omissions of formulas about all rights reserved or the like, I am afraid the new copyright bill will leave me with exactly the opinion both of the copyright law and the wisdom of Parliament I at present entertain. As a good socialist I do not at all object to the limitation of my right of property in my own works to a comparatively brief period, 
followed by a complete communism. In fact, I cannot see why the same salutary limitation should not be applied to all property rights whatsoever, but a system which enables any alert sharper to acquire property rights in my stories as against myself and the rest of the community would, it seems to me, justify a rebellion if authors were numerous and warlike enough to make one. It may be asked why I have written the admirable Bashville in blank verse. My answer is that I had but a week to write it in. Blank verse is so childishly easy and expeditious, hence, by the way, Shakespeare's copious output, that by adopting it I was enabled to do within the week what would have cost me a month in prose. Besides, I am fond of blank verse, not nineteenth-century blank verse, of course, nor indeed, with a very few exceptions, any post-Shakespearean blank verse. Nay, not Shakespearean blank verse itself later than the histories. When an author can write the prose dialogue of the first scene in As You Like It, or Hamlet's colloquies with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, there is really no excuse for the seven ages and to be or not to be, except the excuse of a haste that made great facility indispensable. I am quite sure that anyone who is to recover the charm of blank verse must frankly go back to its beginnings and start a literary pre-Raphaelite brotherhood. I like the melodious sing-song, the clear, simple one-line and two-line sayings, and the occasional rhymed tags, like the half-closes in an eighteenth-century symphony, in Peel, Kidd, Green, and the histories of Shakespeare. How anyone with music in him can turn from Henry the Sixth, John, and the two Richards, to such a mess of verse half-developed into rhetorical prose as Cymbeline, is to me explicable only by the uncivil hypothesis that the artistic qualities in the Elizabethan drama do not exist for most of its critics, so that they hang on to its purely prosaic content and hypnotize themselves into absurd exaggerations of the value of that content. Even poets fall under the spell. Ben Jonson described Marlowe's line as mighty, as well put Michelangelo's epitaph on the tombstone of Paolo Uccello. No wonder Jonson's blank verse is the most horribly disagreeable product in literature, and indicates his most prosaic mood, as surely as his shorter rhymed measures indicate his poetic mood. Marlowe never wrote a mighty line in his life. Cowper's single phrase, toll for the brave, drowns all his mightinesses as great Tom drowns a military band. But Marlowe took that very pleasant-sounding rigmarole of peel and green, and added to its sunny daylight the insane splendors of night and the cheap tragedy of crime. Because he had only a common sort of brain, he was hopelessly beaten by Shakespeare, but he had a fine ear and a soaring spirit. In short, one does not forget wanton Arethusa's azure arms and the like. But the pleasant-sounding rigmarole was the basis of the whole thing, and as long as that rigmarole was practiced frankly for the sake of its pleasantness, it was readable and speakable. It lasted until Shakespeare did to it what Raphael did to Italian painting, that is, overcharged and burst it by making it the vehicle of a new order of thought, involving a mass of intellectual ferment and psychological research. The rigmarole could not stand the strain, and Shakespeare's style ended in a chaos of half-shattered old forms, half-emancipated new ones, with occasional bursts of prose eloquence on the one hand, occasional delicious echoes of the rigmarole, mostly from Caliban's and mask personages on the other, with, alas, a great deal of filling up with formulary blank verse which had no purpose except to save the author's time and thought. When a great man destroys an art form in this way, its ruins make palaces for the clever would-be great. After Michelangelo and Raphael, Giulio Romano and the Caracci, 
after Marlowe and Shakespeare, Chapman and the police news poet Webster. Webster's specialty was blood, Chapman's balderdash. Many of us by this time find it difficult to believe that pre-Ruskinite art criticism used to prostrate itself before the works of Domenicino and Guido, and to patronize the modest little beginnings of those who came between Cimabue and Masaccio. But we have only to look at our own current criticism of Elizabethan drama to satisfy ourselves that in an art which has not yet found its Ruskin or its pre-Raphaelite brotherhood, the same folly is still academically propagated. It is possible, and even usual, for men professing to have ears and a sense of poetry to snub Peel and Green, and grovel before Fletcher and Webster. Fletcher, a facile blank verse penny-aligner, Webster, a turgid paper cutthroat. The subject is one which I really cannot pursue without intemperance of language. The man who thinks the Duchess of Malfi better than David and Bathsheba is outside the pale, not merely of literature, but almost of humanity. Yet some of the worst of these post-Shakespearean duffers, from Johnson to Haywood, suddenly became poets when they turned from the big drum of pseudo-Shakespearean drama to the pipe and tabor of the mask, exactly as Shakespeare himself recovered the old charm of the rigmarole when he turned from Prospero to Ariel and Caliban. Cyril Turner and Haywood could certainly have produced very pretty rigmarole plays if they had begun where Shakespeare began, instead of trying to begin where he left off. Johnson and Beaumont would very likely have done themselves credit on the same terms. Marston would have had at least a chance. Massinger was in his right place, such as it was, and one would not disturb the gentle Ford, who was never born to storm the footlights. Webster could have done no good anyhow or anywhere. The man was a fool. And Chapman would always have been a blathering, unreadable pedant, like Lander, in spite of his classical amateurship and respectable strenuosity of character. But with these exceptions, it may plausibly be held that if Marlowe and Shakespeare could have been kept out of their way, the rest would have done well enough on the lines of Peel and Green. However, they thought otherwise, and now that their free-thinking paganism, so dazzling to the pupils of Paley and the converts of Wesley, offers itself in vain to the disciples of Darwin and Nietzsche, there is an end of them, and a good riddance, too. Accordingly, I have poetasted the admirable Bashville in the rigmarole style. And lest the Webster worshippers should declare that there is not a single correct line in all my three acts, I have stolen or paraphrased a few from Marlowe and Shakespeare, not to mention Henry Carey, so that if any man dares quote me derisively, he shall do so in peril of inadvertently lighting on a purple patch from Hamlet or Faustus. I have also endeavoured in this little play to prove that I am not the heartless creature some of my critics take me for. I have strictly observed the established laws of stage popularity and probability. I have simplified the character of the heroine, and summed up her sweetness in the one sacred word, love. I have given consistency to the heroism of Cashel. I have paid to morality, in the final scene, the tribute of poetic justice. I have restored patriotism to its usual place on the stage, and gracefully acknowledged the throne as the fountain of social honor. I have paid particular attention to the construction of the play, which will be found equal in this respect to the best contemporary models. And I trust the result will be found satisfactory. End of Preface Act One of The Admirable Bashville by George Bernard Shaw. This is a LibriVox recording. 
All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lydia. Read by Ariel Lipshaw. Cashel Byron. Read by Algie Pug. The part of Mellish played by Anthony. Lucian. Read by M.B. Bashville. Read by Matthew Reese. A Newsboy and Master of the Revels. Read by Tricia G. Setiweo. Read by Peter Bishop. Lord Worthington. Read by Alan 1405. Paradise. Read by Elizabeth Clatt. Adelaide Gisborne. Read by Elizabeth Clatt. The Admirable Bashville, or Constancy Unrewarded. Act One. A Glade in Wiltstoken Park. Enter Lydia. Ye leafy breasts and warm protecting wings of mother trees that hatch our tender souls, and from the well of nature in our hearts thaw the intolerable inch of ice that bears the weight of all the stamping world. Hear ye me sing to solitude that I, Lydia Carew, the owner of these lands, albeit most rich, most learned, and most wise, am yet most lonely. What are riches worth when wisdom with them comes to show the purse-bearer that life remains unpurchasable? Learning learns but one lesson, doubt. To excel all is to be lonely. O oh, ye busy birds, engrossed with real needs, ye shameless trees with arms outspread in welcome of the sun, your minds, bent singly to enlarge your lives, have given you wings and raised your delicate heads high heavens above us crawlers. A rook sets up a great cawing, and the other birds chatter loudly as a gust of wind sets the branches swaying. She makes as though she would show them her sleeves. Lo, the leaves that hide my drooping boughs! Mock me, poor maid, deride with joyous comfortable chatter these stolen feathers. Laugh at me, the clothed one. Laugh at the mind fed on foul air and books. Books, art, and culture. Oh, I shall go mad! Give me a mate that never heard of these, a sylvan god, tree-born in heart and sap, or else eternal maidhood be my hap. Another gust of wind and bird-chatter. She sits on the mossy root of an oak and buries her face in her hands. Cashel Byron, in a white singlet and breeches, comes through the trees. What's this? Whom have we here? A woman? Yes. You have no business here. I have. Away! Women distract me. Hence! Bid you me hence. I am upon mine own ground. Who are you? I take you for a god, a sylvan god. This place is mine. I share it with the birds. The trees, the sylvan gods, the lovely company of haunted solitudes. A sylvan god? A goat-eared image? Do your statues speak, walk, heave the chest with breath, or like a feather lift you? Like this? He sets her on her feet. You take away my breath. You're strong. Your hands off, please. Thank you. Farewell. Before you go, when shall we meet again? Why should we meet again? Who knows? We shall. That much I know by instinct. What's your name? Lydia Carew. Lydia's a pretty name. Where do you live? In the castle. Do not say... You are the lady of this great domain. I am. Accursed luck! I took you for the daughter of some farmer. Well, your pardon. I came too close. I looked too deep. 
Farewell. I pardon that. Now tell me who you are. Ask me not whence I come, nor what I am. You are the lady of the castle. I have but this hard and blackened hand to live by. I have felt its strength and envied you. Your name? I have told you mine. My name is Cashel Byron. I never heard the name, and yet you utter it as men announce a celebrated name. Forgive my ignorance. I bless it, Lydia. I forgot your other name. Carew. Cashel's a pretty name, too. Mellish, calling through the wood. Byron. A thousand curses! Oh, I beg you, go! This is a man you must not meet. He's losing us. What does he in my woods? He is a part of what I am. What that is, you must not know. It would end all between us. And yet there's no dishonour in't. Your lawyer, who let your lodge to me, will vouch me honest. I am ashamed to tell you what I am, at least as yet. Some day, perhaps. His voice is nearer. Fare you well, my tenant. When next your rent falls due, come to the castle. Pay me in person. Sir, you're most obedient. She curtsies and goes. Lives in this castle. Owns this park. A lady marry a prize-fighter? Impossible. And yet the prize-fighter must marry her. Enter Mellish. Ensanguined swine wilt by a doggish dam. Is this thy park, that thou, with voice obscene, Fill'st it with yodeled yells, and scream'st my name For all the world to know that Cashel Byron Is training here for combat? Swine you me? I've caught you, have I? You have found a woman. Let her shoe here again. I'll set the dog on her. I will, I say it, in my name's Bob Mellish. Change thy initial and be truly height hellish. As for thy dog, why dost thou keep one and bark thyself? Be gone. I'll not be gone. You shall come back with me and do your duty. Your duty to your backers, do you hear? You have not punched the bag this blessed day. The putrid bag engirdled by thy belt invites my fist. Ingrate, O oh, wretched lot! Who would a trainer be? O oh, Mellish Mellish, trainer of heroes, builder up of brawn, vicarious victor, thou createst champions, that quickly turn thy tyrants, but beware, without me thou art nothing, disobey me, and thy boasted strength shall fall from thee, with flaccid muscles and with failing breath, facing the fist of thy more faithful foe. I'll see thee on the grass, cursing the day thou didst forswear thy training. Noisome quack, that canst not from thine own abhorrent visage take one carbuncle, thou contaminatest, even with thy presence, my untainted blood. Preach abstinence to rascals like thyself, rotten with surfeiting. Leave me in peace. This grove is sacred, thou profanest it. Hence, I have business that concerns thee not. Ay, with your woman, you will lose your fight. Have you forgot your duty to your backers? Oh, what a sacred thing your duty is! What makes a man but duty? Where will we without our duty? Think of Nelson's words. England expects that every man. Shall twaddle about his duty. Mellish, at no hour can I regard thee wholly without loathing. But when thou place the moralist, by heaven, my soul flies to my fist, my fist to thee, and never did the cyclops hammer fall on Mars' armour. But enough of that. It does remind me of my mother. 
Ah, Byron, let it remind thee, once I heard an old song, it ran thus. <clears throat> they say there is no other can take the place of mother. I am out of voice. Forgive me, but remember thy mother, where that sainted woman here would say, Obey thy trainer. Now, by heaven, some fate is pushing thee upon thy doom. Canst thou not hear thy sands as they run out? They thunder like an avalanche. Old man, two things I hate, my duty and my mother. Why dost thou urge them both upon me now? Presume not on thine age and on thy nastiness. Vanish, and promptly. Can I leave thee here, thus thinly clad, exposed to vernal dews? Come back with me, my son, out to our lodge. Within this breast a fire is newly lit, whose glow shall sun the dew away, whose radiance shall make the orb of night hang in the heavens unnoticed, like a glow-worm at high noon. Ah me, ah me, where wilt thou spend the night? Wilt Sturkin's windows wandering beneath, wilt Sturkin's holy bell hearkening, wilt Sturkin's lady loving breathlessly? The lady of the castle, thou art mad. Tis thou art mad to trifle in my path, thwart me no more be gone my boy my son i give my heart's blood for thy happiness thwart thee my son ah no i'll go with thee i'll brave the dews i'll sacrifice my sleep i am old no matter nearer shall it be said mellish deserted thee you resolute gods that will not spare this man upon your knees take the disparity twixt his age and mine now from the ring to the high judgment seat i step at your behest, bear you me witness, this is not victory, but execution. He solemnly projects his fist with colossal force against the waistcoat of Mellish, who doubles up like a folded towel, and lies without sense or motion. And now the night is beautiful again. The castle clock strikes the hour in the distance. Hark, 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 hark. Hark, 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 hark. It strikes in poetry. Tis ten o'clock. Lydia, to thee. He steals off towards the castle. Mellish stirs and groans. End of Act One Act Two of The Admirable Bashville by George Bernard Shaw this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Act Two, Scene One. London. A room in Lydia's house. Enter Lydia and Lucian. Welcome, dear cousin, to my London house. Of late you have been chary of your visits. I have been greatly occupied of late. The minister to whom I act as scribe in Downing Street was born in Birmingham, and, like a thoroughbred commercial statesman, splits his infinitives, which I, poor slave, must reunite, though all the time my heart yearns for my gentle cousin's company. Lucian, there is some other reason. Think. Since England was a nation, every mood her scribes have prepositionally split. But thine avoidance dates from yester-month. There is a man I like not haunts this house. Thou speak'st of Cashel Byron. I of him. 
hast thou forgotten that eventful night when as we gathered were at hoskin house to hear a lecture by herr abendgasse he placed a single finger on my chest and i ensorcelled would have sunk supine had not a chair received my falling form pooh that was by way of illustration what right had he to illustrate his point upon my person was i his assistant that he should try experiments on me as simpson did on his with chloroform now by the cannon-balls of galileo he hath unmanned me all my nerve is gone this very morning my official chief tapping with a friendly forefinger this button levelled me like a thunder-stricken elm flat upon the colonial office floor fancies cause fancies fits the chief said fits delirium tremens the chlorotic dance of vitus what could any one have thought your ruffian friend hath ruined me <laughs> by heaven i tremble at a thumbnail give me drink what ho without there bashville bashville without coming madam enter bashville my cousin ails bashville procure some wet exit bashville some wet well aren't you that atrocious word this is the language of a flower girl true it is horrible said i some wet i meant some drink why did i say some wet am i ensorcelled too some wet fie fie i feel as though some hateful thing had stained me o oh, lucian how could i have said some wet the horrid conversation of this man hath numbed thy once unfailing sense of fitness nay he speaks very well he's literate shakespeare he quotes unconsciously and yet anon he talks pure pothouse enter bashville sir your potion uh, thanks he drinks <laughs> i am better a newsboy calling without extra special star result of the great fight name of the winner who calls so loud the papers madam why hath aught momentous happened madam yes he produces a newspaper all england for these thrilling paragraphs a week has waited breathless read them to us at noon to-day unknown to the police within a thousand miles of wormwood scrubs the australian champion and his challenger the flying dutchman formerly engaged in the mercantile marine fought to a finish lord worthington the well-known sporting peer acted as referee lord worthington the bold ned skeen revisited the ropes to hold the bottle for his quondam novice whilst in the seaman's corner were assembled professor palmer and the chelsea snob mellish whose epigastrium has been hurt tis said by accident at wiltstoken looked none the worse in the australian's corner the flying dutchman wore the union jack his colours freely sold amid the crowd but cashel's well-known spot of white on blue whose did you say cashel's my lady lucian your hand a chair madam you're ill proceed what you have read i do not understand yet i will hear it through proceed uh, proceed but cashel's well-known spot of white on blue was fairly rushed for time was called at twelve when with a smile of confidence upon his ocean-beaten mug his mug his face the dutchman came undaunted to the scratch but found the champion there already both most heartily shook hands amid the cheers of their encouraged backers two to one was offered on the melbourne nonpareil and soon so fit the flying dutchman seemed found takers everywhere no time was lost in getting to the business of the day the dutchman led at once and seemed to land on byron's dice-box 
but the seaman's reach, too short for execution at long shots, did not get fairly home upon the ivory, and Byron had the best of the exchange. I do not understand. What were they doing? Fighting with naked fists. Oh, horrible. I'll hear no more. Or stay, how did it end? Was Cashel hurt? Lucian to Bashville. Skip to the final round. Round three. The rumors that had gone about of a breakdown in Byron's recent training seemed quite confirmed. Upon the call of time he rose and, looking anything but cheerful, proclaimed with every breath bellows to mend. At this point six to one was freely offered upon the Dutchman, and Lord Worthington plunged at this figure till he stood to lose a fortune, should the Dutchman, as seemed certain, take down the number of the Panley boy. The Dutchman, glutton as we know he is, seemed this time likely to go hungry. Cashel was clearly groggy as he slipped the sailor, who, not to be denied, followed him up, forcing the fighting mid tremendous cheers. Oh, stop, no more. Or tell the worst at once. I'll be revenged. Bashville, call the police. This brutal sailor shall be made to know there's law in England. Do not interrupt him. Mine eyes are thirsting. Finish, man, what next? Forty to one, the Dutchman's friends exclaimed. Done, said Lord Worthington, who shewed himself a sportsman every inch. Barely the bet was booked when, at the reeling champion's jaw, the sailor, bent on winning out of hand, sent in his right. The issue seemed a cert, when Cashel, ducking smartly to his left, cross-countered like a hundredweight of brick. Death and damnation! Oh, what does it mean? The Dutchman went to grass, a beaten man. Hurrah! 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 Oh, well done, Cashel! A scene of indescribable excitement ensued for it was now quite evident that Byron's grogginess had all along been feigned, to make the market for his backers. We trust this sample of colonial smartness will not find imitators on this side. The losers settled up like gentlemen, but many felt that Byron shewed bad taste in taking old Ned Skeen upon his back, and, with Bob Mellish tucked beneath his oxter, sprinting a hundred yards to show the crowd the perfect pink of his condition. A knock. Lydia turning pale. Bashville, didst hear? A knock. Madam, tis Byron's knock. Shall I admit him? Reeking from the ring? Oh, monstrous! Say you're out! Send him away. I will not see the wretch. How dare he keep secrets from me? I'll punish him. Pray say I'm not at home. Bashville turns to go. Yet stay. I am afraid he will not come again. A consummation devoutly to be wished by any lady. Pray, do you wish this man to come again? No, Lucian, he hath used me very ill. He should have told me. I will ne'er forgive him. Say not at home. Yes, madam. Exit. Stay. Lucian, stopping her. No, Lydia, you shall not countermand that proper order. Oh, would you cast the treasure of your mind, the thousands at your bank, and, above all, your unassailable social position before this soulless mass of beef and brawn nay cuz you're prejudiced cashel without liar and slave what words were those the man is drunk with slaughter enter bashville running he shuts the door and locks it save yourselves at the staircase foot the champion sprawls on the mat by trick of wrestler tripped but when he rises woe betide us all who bade you treat my visitor with violence he would not take my answer, thrust the door back in my face, gave me the lie in the throat. Averred he felt your presence in his bones. 
I said he should feel mine there too, and felled him, then fled to bar your door. Oh, lover's instinct! He felt my presence. Well, let him come in. We must not fail in courage with a fighter. Unlock the door. Uh, uh, stop! Like all women, Lydia, you have the courage of immunity. To strike you or against his code of honor. But me above the belt he may perform unto the height of his profession. Also oh, oh, bashful. Think not of me, sir. Let him do his worst. Oh, if the valor of my heart could weigh the fatal difference twixt his weight and mine, a second battle should he do this day. Nay, though outmatched I be, let but my mistress give me the word. Instant I'll take him on, here, now, at catchweight. Better bite the carpet a man than fly a coward. Bravely said. I will assist you with the poker. No, I will not have him touched. Open the door. Destruction knocks thereat. I smile and open. Bashville opens the door. Dead silence. Cashel enters in tears. A solemn pause. You know my secret? Yes. And thereupon you bade your servant fling me from your door. I bade my servant say I was not here. Why didst thou better thy instruction, man? Hadst thou but said, she bade me tell thee this, thou'dst burst my heart. I thank thee for thy mercy. O oh, Lucian, didst thou call him drunk with slaughter? Canst thou refrain from weeping at his woe? The unwritten law that shields the amateur against professional resentment saves thee. O oh, coward, to traduce behind their backs defenceless prize-fighters. Thou dost avow thou art a prize-fighter. It was my glory. I had hoped to offer to my lady there my belts, my championships, my heaped-up stakes, my undefeated record, but I knew behind their blaze a hateful secret lurked. Another secret? Is there worse to come? Know ye not, then, my mother is an actress? Oh, how horrible! Nay, nay, how interesting! A thousand victories cannot wipe out that birth-stain. Oh, my speech bereath it. My earliest lesson was the player's speech in Hamlet, and to this day I express myself more like a mabled queen than like a man of flesh and blood. Well may your cousin sneer. What's Hecuba to him, or he to Hecuba? Injurious upstart! If by Hecuba thou pointest darkly at my lovely cousin, know that she is to me and I to her what never canst thou be. I do defy thee and mogul all the odds thy skill doth give, outside I will await thee. I forbid expressly any such duello. Bashville, the door. Put Mr. Webber in a hansom, and bid the driver hie to Downing Street. No answer, tis my will. Exeunt Lucian and Bashville. And now farewell. You must not come again, unless indeed you can some day look in my eyes and say, Lydia, my occupation's gone. Ah, oh, no! It would remind you of my wretched mother. Oh, God, let me be natural a moment. What other occupation can I try? What would you have me be? A gentleman. A gentleman? I, Cashel Byron, stoop to be the thing that bets on me. The fool I flatter at so many coins a lesson. The screaming creature who beside the ring gambles with basest wretches for my blood and pays with money that he never earned. Let me die broken-hearted, rather. 
But you need not be an idle gentleman. I call you one of nature's gentlemen. That's the collection for the loser, Lydia. I'm not wont to need it. When your friends contest elections, and at foot of the poll rue their presumption, tis their wont to claim a moral victory. In a sort they are nature's MPs. I am not yet so threadbare as to accept these consolation stakes. You are offended with me. Yes, I am. I can put up with much, but nature's gentleman. I thank your ladyship of Lyon, but must beg to be excused. But surely, surely to be a prize-fighter and maul poor mariners with naked knuckles is no work for you. Thou dost arraign the inattentive fates that weave my thread of life in ruder patterns than these that lie, anti-macassily, asprent thy drawing-room. As well demand why I at birth chose to begin my life, a speechless babe, hairless, incontinent, hobbling upon all fours, a nurse's nuisance, or why I do propose to lose my strength, to blanch my hair, to let the gums recede far up my yellowing teeth, and finally lie down and moulder in a rotten grave. Only one thing more foolish could have been, and that was to be born not man, but woman. This was thy folly. Why rebukest thou mine? These are not things of choice. And did I choose my quick divining eye, my lightning hand, my springing muscle and untiring heart? Did I implant the instinct in the race that found a use for these, and said to me, Fight for us, and be fame and fortune thine? But there are other callings in the world. Go, tell thy painters to turn stockbrokers, thy poet friends to stoop o'er merchants' desks, and pen prose records of the gains of greed. Tell bishops that religion is outworn, and that the pamper to the horse-breaker opes new careers. Bid the professor quit his fraudulent pedantries, and do in the world the thing he would teach others. Then return to me, and say, Cashel, they have obeyed, and on that pyre of sacrifice I, too, will throw my championship. But tis so cruel. Is it so? I have hardly noticed that. So cruel are all callings. Yet this hand, that many a two days bruise hath ruthless given, hath kept no dungeon locked for twenty years, hath slain no sentient creature for my sport. I am too squeamish for your dainty world, that cowers behind the gallows and the lash, the world that robs the poor, and with their spoil does what its tradesmen tell it. Oh, your ladies, seal-skinned and egret-feathered, all defiance to nature, cowering if one say to them, What will the servants think? Your gentlemen, your tailor-tyrannized visitors of whom flutter of wing and singing in the wood make chicken butchers, and your medicine-men, groping for cures in the tormented entrails of friendly dogs. Pray, have you asked all these to change their occupations? Find you mine so grimly crueler? I cannot breathe an air so petty and so poisonous. But find you not their manners very nice? To me, perfection. Oh, they condescend with a rare grace. Your duke, who condescends almost to the whole world, might for a man pass in the eyes of those who never saw the duke capped with a prince. See then, ye gods, the duke turned footman, and his eager dame sink, the great lady in the obsequious housemaid. Oh, at such moments I could wish the court had but one bread-basket, 
that with my fist I could make all its windy vanity gasp itself out on the gravel. Fare you well. I did not choose my calling, but at least I can refrain from being a gentleman. You say farewell to me without a pang. My calling hath apprenticed me to pangs. This is a rib-bender, but I can bear it. It is a lonely thing to be a champion. It is a lonelier thing to be a woman. Be lonely, then. Shall it be said of thee that for his brawn thou misalliance madest with the prince of ruffians? Never. Go thy ways, or if thou hast nostalgia of the mud, wed some bedogged wretch that on the slot of gilded snobbery, ventre et terre, will hunt through life with eager nose on earth, and hang thee thick with diamonds. I am rich, but all my gold was fought for with my hands. What dost thou mean by rich? There is a man, height paradise, vaunted unconquerable, hath dared to say he will be glad to hear from me. I have replied that none can hear from me until a thousand solid pounds be staked. His friends have confidently found the money. Ere fall of leaf, that money shall be mine, and then I shall possess ten thousand pounds. I had hoped to tempt thee with that monstrous sum. Thou silly Cashel, tis but a week's income. I did propose to give thee three times that, for pocket-money when we two were wed. Give me my hat. I have been fooling here. Now, by the Hebrew lawgiver, I thought that only in America such revenues were decent deemed. Enough. My dream is dreamed. Your gold weighs like a mountain on my chest. Farewell. The golden mountain shall be thine, the day thou quitst thy horrible profession. Tempt me not, woman. It is honour calls, slave to the ring, I rest until the face of paradise be changed. Enter Bashville. Madam, your carriage, ordered by you at two, tis now half-past. Stith! Is it half-past two? The king! The king! The king? What mean you? I must meet a monarch this very afternoon at Islington. At Islington? You must be mad. A cab! Go call a cab, and let a cab be called, and let the man that calls it be thy footman. You are not well. You shall not go alone. My carriage waits. I must accompany you. I go to find my hat. Exit. Like Paracelsus, who went to find his soul. To Bashville. And now, young man, how comes it that a fellow of your inches, so deft a wrestler, and so bold a spirit, can stoop to be a flunky? Call on me on your next evening out. I'll make a man of you. Surely you are ambitious and aspire. To be a butler, and draw corks. Wherefore, by heaven, I will draw yours. He hits Cashel on the nose and runs out. Cashel, thoughtfully putting the side of his forefinger to his nose and studying the blood on it. Too quick for me. There's money in this youth. Re-enter Lydia, hatted and gloved. Oh, heaven! You bleed! Lend me a key or other frigid object, that I may put it down my back and staunch the welling life-stream. Lydia, giving him her keys. Oh, what have you done? Flush on the boko napped your footman's left. I do not understand. True. Pardon me. I have received a blow upon the nose in sport from Bashville. Next, ablution, else I shall be total ghouls. He hurries out. How well he speaks! There is a silver trumpet in his lips that stirs me to the finger-ends. His nose dropped lovely colour. 
tis a perfect blood. I would twere mingled with mine own. Enter Bashville. What now? Madam, the coachman can no longer wait. The horses will take cold. I do beseech him a moment's grace. O oh, mockery of wealth! The third-class passenger unchidden rides, whither and when he will. Obsequious trams await him hourly. Subterranean tubes with tireless coursers whisk him through the town. But we, the rich, are slaves to Houinims. We wait upon their colds and froust all day indoors if they but cough or spurn their hay. Madam, an omnibus to Euston Road, and thence to the Angel. Enter Cashel. Let us haste, my love. The coachman is impatient. Did he guess he stays for Cashel Byron? He'd outweight Pompey's sentinel. Let us away. This day of deeds, as yet but half begun, must ended be in merry Islington. Exeunt Lydia and Cashel. Gods, how she hangs on his arm. I am alone. Now let me lift the cover from my soul. O oh, wasted humbleness, deluded diffidence, how often have I said, Lie down, poor footman, she'll never stoop to thee, rear as thou wilt thy powder to the sky. And now by heaven she stoops below me, condescends upon this hero of the pothouse, whose exploits writ in my character from my last place would damn me into ostlerdom, and yet there's an eternal justice in it. For by so much as the ne'er-subdued Indian excels the servile negro, does this ruffian precedence take of me. Ich dien, damnation, I serve. My motto should have been, I scalp. And yet I do not bear the yoke for gold. Because I love her, I have blacked her boots. Because I love her, I have cleaned her knives. Doing in this the office of a boy, whilst, like the celebrated maid that milks and does the meanest chairs, I've shared the passions of Cleopatra. It has been my pride to give her place the greater altitude by lowering mine, and of her dignity to be so jealous that my cheek has flamed even at the thought of such a deep disgrace as love for such a one as I would be for such a one as she. And now, and now a prize-fighter! Oh, irony! Oh, bathos! To have made way for this! Oh, Bashville, Bashville! Why hast thou thought so lowly of thyself, so heavenly high of her? Let what will come. My love must speak. T'was my respect was dumb. Scene two. The agricultural hall in Islington, crowded with spectators. In the arena a throne with a boxing ring before it. A balcony above on the right, occupied by persons of fashion. Among others, Lydia and Lord Worthington. Flourish. Enter Lucian and Setawayo with chiefs in attendance. Is this the hall of husbandmen? It is. Are these anemic dogs the English people? Mislike us not for our complexions, the pallid liveries of the pool of smoke belched by the mighty chimneys of our factories, and by the million patent kitchen ranges of happy English homes. When first I came, I deemed those chimneys the fuliginous altars of some infernal god. I now perceive the English dare not look upon the sky. They are moles and owls. They call upon the soot to cover them. You cannot understand the greatness of this people, Setawayo. You are a savage, reasoning like a child. Each pallid English face conceals a brain whose powers are proven in the works of Newton and in the plays of the immortal Shakespeare. 
there is not a one of all the thousands here but if you placed him naked in the desert would presently construct a steam engine and lay a cable to the antipodes have i been brought a million miles by sea to learn how men can lie no father weber men become civilized through twin diseases terror and greed to wit these two conjoined become the grisly parents of invention why does the trembling white with frantic toil of hand and brain produce the magic gun that slays a mile off while the manly zulu dares look his foe in the face fights foot to foot lives in the present drains the here and now makes life a long reality and death a moment only whilst your englishman glares at his burning candles winding sheets counting the steps of his approaching doom and in the murky corners ever sees two horrid shadows death and poverty in the which anguish an unnatural edge comes on his frightened brain which straight devises strange frauds by which to filch unearned gold mad crafts by which to slay unfaced foes until at last his agonized desire makes possibility its slave and then horrible climax all undoing spite the importunate clutching of the coward's hand from wearied nature devastation's secrets doth rest when straight the brave black-livered man is blown explosively from off the globe and death and dread with their white-livered slaves o'errun the earth and through their chattering teeth stammer the words survival of the fittest enough of this i came not here to talk Thou sayest thou hast two white-faced ones who dare fight without guns, and spearless to the death. Let them be brought. They fight not to the death, but under strictest rules. As, for example, half of their persons shall not be attacked, nor shall they suffer blows when they fall down, nor stroke of foot at any time. And further, that frequent opportunities of rest with succor and refreshment be secured them. Ye gods, what cowards! Zululand, my Zululand, personified pusillanimity hath torn thee from the bravest of the brave. Lo, the rude savage, whose untutored mind cannot perceive self-evidence, and doubts that brave and English mean the self-same thing. Well, well, produce these heroes. I surmise they will be carried by their nurses, lest some barking dog or bumbling bee should scare them. Setawayo takes his state. Enter Paradise. What hateful wretch is this, whose mighty thews presage destruction to his adversaries? Tis paradise. He of whom Cashel spoke. A dreadful thought ices my heart. Oh, why did Cashel leave us at the door? Enter Cashel. Behold, the champion comes. Oh, I could kiss him now, here, before all the world. His boxing things render him most attractive. But I fear yon villain's fists may maul him. Have no fear. Hark, the king speaks. Ye sons of the White Queen, tell me your names and deeds, ere ye fall too. Your Royal Highness, you beholds a bloke what gets his living honest by his fists. I may not have the polish of some toffs as I could mention on, but up to now no man has took my number down. I scale close on twelve stun, my age is twenty-three, and at Bill Richardson's Blue Anchor pub am to be heard of any day by such as likes the job. I don't know, Governor, as anything remains for me to say. Six wives and thirty oxen shalt thou have, if on the sand thou leave thou foeman dead. Methinks he looks scornfully on thee. To Cashel. Ha! Dost thou not so? 
Sir, I do beseech you to name the bone or limb or special place where you would have me hit him with this fist. Thou hast a noble brow, but much I fear thine adversary will disfigure it. There's a divinity that shapes our ends. Rough hew them how we will. Give me the gloves. Paradise, a professor. Cashel Byron, also professor. Time! They spar. Eternity, it seems to me, until this fight be done. Dread monarch, this is called the uppercut, and this a hook hit of mine own invention. The hollow region where I plant this blow is called the mark. My left, you will observe, I chiefly use for long shots, with my right aiming beside the angle of the jaw, and landing with a certain delicate screw, I, without violence, knock my firman out. Mark how he falls forward upon his face. The rules allow ten seconds to get up and as the man is still quite silly, I might safely finish him, but my respect for your most gracious majesty's desire to see some further triumphs of the science of self-defence postpones a while his doom. How can a bloke do hisself proper justice with pillows on his fists? He tears off his gloves and attacks Cashel with his bare knuckles. Unfair! Unfair. The, the rules! The joy of battle surges, boiling up and bids me join the melee. Aizand Halana, and victory! He falls on the bystanders. Victory, victory and Aizand They run amuck. General panic and stampede. The ring is swept away. Forbear these most irregular proceedings. Police! Police! He engages Setawayo his umbrella. The balcony comes down with a crash. Screams from its occupants. Indescribable confusion. Cashel, dragging Lydia from the struggling heap. My love, my love, art hurt? No, no, but save my sore or matchet cousin. Give us a lead, sir. Save the English flag. Africa tramples on it. Africa! Not all the continents whose mighty shoulders the dancing diamonds of the seas bedeck shall trample on the blue with spots of white. Now, Lydia, mark thy lover. He charges the Zulus. Hercules cannot withstand him. See, the king is down. The tallest chief is up, heels overhead, tossed cork-like o'er my cashel's sinewy back, and his lieutenant all deflated gasps for breath upon the sand. The others fly in vain. His fist o'er magic distances like a chameleon's tongue shoots to its mark, and the last African upon his knees sues piteously for quarter. Rushing into cashel's arms. Oh, my hero! Thou saved us all this day. T'was all for thee. Set a while, trying to rise. Have I been struck by lightning? Sir, your conduct can only be described as most ungentlemanly. One of the prone is white. Tis paradise. He's choking. He has something in his mouth. Lydia to Cashel. Oh, heaven! There is blood upon your hip. You're hurt. The morsel in yon wretch's mouth was bitten out of me. Sensation. Lydia screams and swoons in Cashel's arms. End of Act Two Act Three of The Admirable Bashville by George Bernard Shaw. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.
Act Three, Wiltstoken, A Room in the Warren Lodge, Lydia at Her Writing Table. Oh, past and present, how ye do conflict as here I sit writing my father's life. The autumn woodland woos me from without, with whispering of leaves and dainty airs to leave this fruitless haunting of the past. My father was a very learned man. I sometimes think I shall old-maided be, ere I unlearn the things he taught to me. Enter policeman. Asking your ladyship to pardon me for this intrusion, might I be so bold as ask a question of your people here concerning the Queen's peace? My people here are but a footman and a simple maid, and both have craved a holiday to join some local festival. But, sir, your helmet proclaims the Metropolitan Police. Madam, it does. And I may now inform you that what you term a local festival is a most hideous outrage against the law, which we, to quell from London, have come down. In short, a prize fight. My sole purpose here is to inquire whether your ladyship any bad characters this afternoon as noted in the neighbourhood. No, none, sir. I had not let my maid go forth to-day, thought I the roads unsafe. Fear nothing, madam. The force protects the fair. My mission here is to wreak ulchion for the broken law. I wish your ladyship good afternoon. Good afternoon. Exit policeman. A prize-fight? Oh, my heart! Cashel, hast thou deceived me? Can it be thou hast backslid into the hateful calling I asked thee to eschew? O oh, wretched maid! Why didst thou flee from London to this place to write thy father's life, when as in town thou mightst have kept a guardian eye on him? What's that? A flying footstep. Enter Cashel. Sanctuary! The law is on my track. What? Lydia here? I, Lydia here. Hast thou done murder, then, that in so horrible a guise thou comest? Murder? I would I had. Yon cannibal hath forty thousand lives, and I have ta'en but thousands thirty-nine. I tell thee, Lydia, on the impenetrable sarcolobe that holds his seedling brain, these fists have pounded by Shrewsbury clock an hour. This bruised grass and caked mud, adhering to my form, I have acquired in rolling on the sod, clinched in his grip. This scanty reefer coat, for decency snatched up as fast I fled when the police arrived, belongs to Mellish. Tis all too short, hence my display of rib and forearm mother naked. Be not wroth, because I seem to wink at you. By heaven, twas paradise that plugged me in the eye, which I perforce keep closing. Pity me, my training wasted and my blows unpaid, sans stakes, sans victory. Sans everything I had hoped to win. Oh, I could sit me down and weep for bitterness. Thou wretch, be gone. Be gone? I say be gone. O oh, tiger's heart wrapped in a young man's hide, canst thou not live in love with nature and at peace with man? Must thou, although thy hands were never made to blacken others' eyes, still batter at the image of divinity? I loathe thee. Hence from my house and never see me more. I go. The meanest lad on thy estate would not betray me thus. But tis no matter. He opens the door. Ha! Ah, the police! I'm lost. He shuts the door again. Now shalt they see my last fight fought. Exhausted as I am, to catch me will cost the coppers dear. Come one, come all. Oh, hide thee, I implore. I cannot see thee hunted down like this. 
There is my room. Conceal thyself therein. Quick, I command. He goes into the room. With horror I foresee. Lydia, that never lied, must lie for thee. Enter policemen, with Paradise and Mellish in custody, Bashville, constables, and others. Keep back your bruised prisoner, lest he shock this well-bred lady's nerves. Your pardon, ma'am. But have you seen by chance the other one? In this direction he was seen to run. A man came here anon with bloody hands, and aspect that did turn my soul to snow. Twas he? What said he? Begged for sanctuary. I bade the man be gone. Most properly. Saw you which way he went? I cannot tell. He seen me coming, and he done a bunk. Peace there. Excuse his damaged features, lady. He's Paradise, and this one's Byron's trainer, Mellish. Injurious copper in thy teeth, I hurl the lie. I am no trainer. I, my father, a respected missionary, apprenticed me at fourteen years of age, to the poetry writing. To these words I came with nature to commune. My reverie was by a sound of blows rudely dispelled. Mindful of what my sainted parent taught, I rushed to play the peacemaker, when, lo, these minions of the law laid hands on me. A lovely woman, with distracted cries, in most resplendent fashionable frock, approaches like a wounded antelope. Enter Adelaide Gisborne. Where is my cashel? Hath he been arrested? I would I had thy cashel by the collar. He hath escaped me. Oh, praises be for ever. Why dost thou call the missing man thy cashel? He is mine only son. Thy, thy son? My son. I thought his mother hardly would have known him, so crushed his countenance. A ribald peer, Lord Worthington by name, this morning came with honeyed words beseeching me to mount his foreign hand, and to the country high to see some English sport. Being by nature frank as a child, I fell into the snare, but it took so long to dress that the design failed of its full effect, for not until the final round we reached the horrid scene. Be silent all, for now I do approach my tragedy's catastrophe. Know then that heaven did bless me with an only son, a boy devoted to his doting mother. Ark, did you hear an oath from yonder room? Respect a broken-hearted mother's grief, and do not interrupt me in my scene. Ten years ago my darling disappeared. Ten dreary twelve months of continuous tears, tears that have left me prematurely aged, for I am younger far than I appear. Judge of my anguish when to-day I saw, stripped to the waist, and fighting like a demon with one who, whatsoe'er his humble virtues, was clearly not a gentleman, my son! Oh, oh strange event! Oh, oh passing fearful tale! I thank you from the bottom of my heart for the reception you have given my woe. And now I ask, where is my wretched son? He must at once come home with me, and quit a course of life that cannot be allowed. Enter Cashel. Policeman, I do yield me to the law. Oh, no! My son! My mother, do not kiss me. My visage is too sore. The lady hid him. This is a regular plot. You cannot be up to that sex. You come along with me. Fear not, my Cashel. I will bail thee out. Never. I do embrace my doom with joy. With paradise in Pentonville or Portland, I shall feel safe. There are no mothers there. 
Ungracious boy! Constable, bear me thence. Oh, let me sweetest reconcilent make, by calling to thy mind that moving song. They say there is no other. Forbear at once, or the next note of music that falls upon thine ear shall clang in thunder from the last trumpet. A disgraceful threat to level at this virtuous old man. O Cashel, if thou scornst thy mother thus, how wilt thou treat thy wife? There spake my fate. I knew you would say that. O mothers, mothers, would you but let your wretched sons alone, life were worth living. Had I any choice in this importunate relationship? None. And until that high auspicious day when the millennium on an orphaned world shall dawn, and man upon his fellow look, reckless of consanguinity my mother and i within the selfsame hemisphere conjointly may not dwell ungentlemanly i am no gentleman i am a criminal red-handed base-born base-born who dares say it thou art the son and heir of bingley bumpkin fitzalgernon de courcy cashel byron sieur of park lane and overlord of dorset who, after three months' wedded happiness, rashly forbid himself with prussic acid, leaving a tear-stained note to testify that, having sweetly honeymooned with me, he now could say, O oh, death, where is thy sting? Sir, had I known your quality, this cop I had averted, but it is too late. The law's above us both. Enter Lucian with an order in council. Not so, policeman. I bear a message from the throne itself, of fullest amnesty for Byron's past. Nay, more, of Dorset, deputy lieutenant, he is proclaimed. Further, it is decreed, in memory of his glorious victory over our country's foes at Islington, the flag of England shall forever bear on azure field twelve swan-like spots of white and by an exercise of feudal right too long disused in this anarchic age, our sovereign doth confer on him the hand of Miss Carew, Wildstoken's wealthy heiress. General Acclamation. Was anything, sir, said about me? Thy faithful services are not forgot. In future call thyself Inspector Smith. Renewed Acclamation. I thank you, sir. I thank you, gentlemen. My former opposition, valiant champion, was based on the supposed discrepancy betwixt your rank and Lydia's. Here's my hand. And I do here unselfishly renounce all my pretensions to my lady's favor. Sensation. What, Bashville? Didst thou love me? Madam, yes. Tis said. Now let me leave immediately. In taking, Bashville, this most tasteful course, you are but acting as a gentleman in the like case would act. I fully grant your perfect right to make a declaration which flatters me and honors your ambition. Prior attachment bids me firmly say that whilst my cashel lives and polyandry rests foreign to the British social scheme, your love is hopeless. Still your services, made zealous by disinterested passion, would greatly add to my domestic comfort, and if— Excuse me. I have other views. I have noted in this man such aptitude for art and exercise in his defence that I prognosticate for him a future more glorious than my past. Henceforth I dub him the admirable Bashville, Byron's novice, 
and to the utmost of my mended fortunes will back him against the world at ten stone six. Must I renounce my lovely lady's service, and mar the face of man? Tis fate's decree, for no rash youth that in this star-crossed world fate drives us all to find our chiefest good in what we can, and not in what we would. A postorn, ark! What noise of wheels is this? Lord Worthington drives upon the scene in his foreign hand and descends. Perfidious peer! Sweet Adelaide. Forbear, audacious one. My name is Mrs. Byron. Oh, change that title for the sweeter one of Lady Worthington. Unhappy man, you know not what you do. Nay, tis a match of most auspicious promise. Dear Lord Worthington, you tear from us our mother-in-law. Ha, ah, true. But we will make the sacrifice. She blushes. At least she very prettily produces blushing's effect. My lord, I do accept you. They embrace, rejoicings. Cashel aside. It wrings my heart to see my noble backer lay waste his future thus. The world's a chessboard, and we the merest pawns in fist of fate. Aloud. And now, my friends, gentle and simple both, our scene draws to a close. In lawful course, as Dawson's deputy lieutenant, I do pardon all concerned this afternoon in the late gross and brutal exhibition of miscalled sport. Lydia, throwing herself into his arms, your boats are burnt at last. This is the face that burnt a thousand boats and ravished Cashel Byron from the ring. But to conclude, let William Paradise devote himself to science and acquire by studying the player's speech in Hamlet a more refined address. You, Robert Mellish, to the Blue Anchor Hostelry attend him, assuage his hurts, and bid Bill Richardson limit his access to the fatal tap. Now mount we on my backers four in hand, and to St. George's Church, whose portico Hanover Square shuts off from Conduit Street, repair we all, strike up the wedding march, and Mellish let thy melodies trill forth, broad o'er the world as fast as we bowl along. Give me the post-horn, loose the flowing rein, and up to London drive with might and main. Exeunt. End of Act Three. End of The Admirable Bashville by George Bernard Shaw.